a Podcast One production. Hello, my name's Gary Megan and this is A Plate to Call Home, conversations with fascinating people all centred around food. Hannah Asafiri. Hannah is a founder of the Moroccan Soup Bar in Fitzroy and more recently has opened the Moroccan Delicacy in Brunswick and is on a mission to combat rising Islamophobia by bringing people together to build understanding. She's a very passionate woman who's changing the face of Islam in Australia and at the same time bringing some of the most delicious Middle Eastern food to Melbourne. Enjoy the chat. So I've got this beautiful book in front of me, The Moroccan Soup Bar. When did you write this book, Anna? How long uh, ago was this? A couple of years ago. And uh, it's certainly been a while in the making, though. And it's been a book who, uh, after 17 years of operation, um, you know, uh, over a decade and a half, um, in a climate of increased kind of negativity that's associated mm. with women and Islam and a whole heap of nonsense, there was not much space for any anything positive. And I thought it's important to put out, I guess, a positive expression rather mm. than just react to the nonsense that seems to be unfolding around us. And uh, the community uh, deserved, I guess, it made the Moroccan super what it is. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there was no trepidation whatsoever about all the recipes. So where, where did the idea of the Moroccan soup bar start? Um, look, I'm somebody who, I guess, essentially my sense of self is had through um, social and community justice advocacy, no matter where that be. And it's not, for me, something that I do nine to five. It's a way of life. It's a perspective through which I see the world. Um and from there, it's been kind of fine-tuned over the years. So I worked in crisis intervention services with women and the endeavour to support those that are made socially vulnerable. Um, and with the changing uh, social context and political climate and funding arrangements, ultimately, the women that we sought to support uh, were the least likely to be provided services under new ways and arrangements of funding. Mm. And for me, I came back to simply... How do we better understand and circuit break that cycle of disadvantage for women? And let's do it in a creative, <laughs> crazy way, like uh, get women together around food, whether they be literate or not. But um, the myriad and the, the diversity of women um, being in places and spaces where they feel validated, they feel safe. We circuit break in a practical way, not just rhetorically, um, some of those experiences of disadvantage. Um, and offer up something, as crazy as it is, unique in that the Moroccan soup bar was founded on, um, I guess, ideals that are not only um, important to us as women, but certainly inside our cultures, the notion of communal eating. We, uh, I dare say, probably introduced in Melbourne, where people sit alongside one another, the, the concept of verbal menus, nothing mm. written, where the personable interaction um, and removing the medium of menus. Um, and those those things were uh, not only um, unusual and unconventional, um, almost everybody thought that was an insane proposition. Why would you and how could you? Um, 
And, you know, from there, the Moroccan Super was born and yeah. it was born and embraced by a community who really had an appetite for better. So. What, what, was, what were some of the critics in the early days saying about your attempt to engage this section of the community like this through well, food? Well, essentially, no one would I think have no. Done it, right? That's so right. Is... And essentially, look, food is synonymous with alcohol, with meat, with uh, there's a standard business plan. So mm. at every level, whether it be an institution that sought to fund you or fund a vision, who looked at me like I was something from outer space. What do you mean I'm supporting or funding your convictions? Um, so no banks would get behind it. Um, and secondly, just in terms of the industry itself. It was an industry where you'd be hard-pressed to um, offer up a place and a space of food and dinner in particular that was vegetarian, without alcohol, um, and a bunch of women, verbal menu, running some version of, you know, none of the conventional structures and systems were available. There was not a latte in sight. Um, and yet... So at every level, whether it be personal kind of relationships in your family who thought, what are you doing, uh, to the institutions that didn't back you. And it was simply stubborn conviction for me mm. that I just thought, I'm somebody who thinks, why not? Um, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Can and you remember the first day you opened, first night you opened for business? Yes, yes, I do. And there was curiously <laughs> um, a number of people kind of just walked in hesitantly, shifting uncomfortably, going, what the hell happens in this joint? Um, and we sat at their table and began a conversation and, um, uh, you know, and it was the, the five people that walked in, it reinforced for me that this is a good thing, you mm. know. If nobody had walked in, I'd, I guess I would have been a bit more unsettled. But five people were five people whose, uh, you know, validation of yeah. of something so unusual. Can you remember what you served them? Uh, we had the Herrera soup because initially, and it did evolve and change over time. So it was called the Moroccan soup bar. And uh, it's about all things ironic, I think. Now there's hardly any soup on the menu and it's become a place and a space. <laughs> People go, where's uh, the soup? I know, they actually do. Um, but uh, so, yeah, at the time we had uh, quite a number of soups and um, a couple of salads and a couple of dips and sides. And the menu evolved over time and... Mm. Um, some some of the signature dishes have obviously people's demand for them has shaped the menu as it's become okay. over the years. So that was the first day, a couple mm. of soups, few salads. Yeah. What is it now when people go, and five people, what yeah, is so, it now? So describe well, it now, well, now 17 now, years later. Now it's 19 years later and uh, I, I feel like I'm the surrogate aunt of a community who um, I mean, I've seen children, uh, and I guess I've known them before they were born. I've seen uh, individuals go from one to two to three, families grow, and now I feel like I'm standing in a hole next to these kids that tower over me. Um, and I guess for me, that is what the Moroccan Super essentially its legacy is. It's a community place and space where we serve food, but we serve food alongside, uh, I guess, an unapologetic um, environment that stands for and supports those that have been made socially vulnerable. Yeah. And more important than ever, I think, are these places and spa spaces where people congregate. So now at the Moroccan Super, you'd be oftentimes, as frustrating as it is, you'd be waiting an hour to get a table. Um, and... 
that's not out of naivety. For me, it was important to maintain the integrity of the place and not just expand due to demands and um, and temptations to grow, but rather keep the integrity of a space that empowers and engages not only individuals but communities and can begin to speak, uh, I guess, to all the issues that I find important mm. and through uh, hospitality. Yeah. I'm going to keep you on the food just for a bit yes. before we get deep and the, you know, <laughs> kind of meaningful. Yes, yes, yes. But so when people come in, yes. what, what are they eating? What kind of dishes are they eating? Where, where does the food come from? Where do the ideas come from? So um, I'm vegetarian and I've grown up uh, experimenting uh, quite a bit with food because uh, I guess like most people of my generation and ilk, um, Meat, you know, is considered to be central to meals and, um, you know, you have to formulate your meal around meat. Whereas from a very young age, for me, meat was not something I liked or enjoyed. All meats um, from the age of six and seven, it really before the politics of it all. And um, so I began to experiment with different flavours and tastes. And we are brought up with uh, an exceptionally rich uh, cuisine, if you like. So um, how do you maintain the integrity of flavours uh, by removing a few ingredients? Became Because of the way I've evolved, became like a language I speak for me. Um, simply you experiment and it just becomes part of the way you do stuff. So now at the Moroccan Super, you'd be, uh, when often people say, is this authentic? Is this Moroccan? Is this, what is authentic? Um, it's our expression of what is authentic, uh, authentic vegetarian that doesn't compromise on the palate and flavours. And um, uh, so you'd get some rice-based meals, couscous-based meals, salads, soup, dips, mm. um, tapas, you know, obviously modernised and made more yeah. contemporary. Um but in, and I think importantly, when it comes to vegetarianism, almost always the assumption is that you've eroded your taste buds when, and now things are changing somewhat, but the idea that vegetarianism can be as tasty um, and or can be afforded uh, chefing celebrity attention uh, is a new uh, phenomenon. Whereas for me, uh, vegetarianism is my normal. It's my way of life. Yeah. And um, offering that up to a community who is more and more um, exploring. Often people don't even know they're eating vegetarian until they walk out. They go, was there any meat in that food? Yeah. So, yeah. It's nice. What about, you know, tantalise us with a couple of dishes, some of your favourites? I like talking about food like this. Yes, we'll leave yes. it alone soon, yes, but yes, I, like, yes, yes. I like it. Because you say some salads or yes, some soups. Yes. So my favourites change over time. And uh, sometimes I really have a like a hunger for the chickpea bake. And other days, if I see another chickpea bake, I'm going to throw it at the wall. Um, <laughs> so what's in a chickpea bake? So uh, the chickpea bake is become one of those, has become one of those kind of signature dishes. It's grilled flatbread baked on the bottom with some butter on top. And it combines ingredients that you normally don't put together. Uh, it's hot and it's cold and it's nuts and it's butter and uh, it tastes like a dessert. It tastes like, um, some people have described it, an orchestra in their mouth. <laughs> um, uh, so, and then it's hot boiled chickpeas, but they've got to be cooked a, a particular way. Chickpeas, I guess, 
a bit like pasta. They they can't be too mushy, nor can they be too hard, and they've got to be that al dente kind of with the right amount of salt at the end. Um, drain properly so you keep your bread, the, your baked bread, like the tacos crunch. Yeah. Um, and then lather with a silky yogurt that's combined with tahini, garlic, the right amount of tahini, garlic, a little bit of salt whipped up to a cream almost. You lather that on top and then uh, sprinkle with sweet paprika. Uh, meanwhile, toasting and roasting the uh, almonds with butter until the butter browns and breaks. And then that on top of it. Tip it over the top. Tip it over the top and then just garnish with pasta. Cheers. You should have brought one. That makes me me really hungry. So that that is the chickpea bake that's had uh, Melbourne. um, I think the best way to describe it, 19 years ago, if you'd said the chickpea bake, people would have gone, what the hell is that? Whereas now it's become a thing. People know it. They know what it is. Well, people are traveling more, right? Yeah. And so when you travel, I mean, I travel to India a lot. Yes. And it's a great vegetarian nation. Yes. And so you just go, how can things be so tasty with no meat, right? But that's normal. You know, they don't sit down to large plates full of meat. And I think, yeah, now it's kind of political. It's a little trendy. Yes, yes. You know, we were were talking amongst us uh, about some new ads that are over the freeway about vegan, Mm. you know, and about being vegan. Yeah. And I thought, I wonder whether that will really have any cut through. You know, like, is it... You know, because people still see it as a little kind of fanatical and out there and whether or not it's more to do with being trendy and healthy rather than making it, taking a genuine interest and changing. Look, I think uh, for a place like Australia and we we need to, um, and again, I just go back to being somebody who's mindful of uh, the environment we're operating in, obesity um, and uh, is a massive issue we need to come to terms with. Um, and I'm not somebody who gives into fads and fashion much. Uh, with that said, I think it is important to look at the health of the nation, the physical health and the mental health, obviously. And the two are so related. Um, so the, it's not about judging those who eat meat or don't eat meat and how much meat we have. It's simply about creating an awareness for what it is that we're consuming, not only the conditions uh, it comes from um, and the environments it comes from and the way it gets treated, it doesn't just, it's not born on a supermarket shelf. But if you can establish a sense of understanding, um, then people will make up their own minds. And I think that is where uh, I guess I'd like to see um, somewhere like Australia go in responding to and dealing with issues of obesity. So not following a fad of veganism or vegetarianism, but a mindfulness and an education um, approach, a bit like... The Life Be In It campaign back in the day. I'm showing my age here. Yeah, no, I remember um, it well. And we all remember it because it spoke to something and it was simple. It was a simple message. And we've got to stop politicising, um, you know, this whole notion of political correctness and left versus right. If this is sincerely and genuinely about getting the nation to change um, and become healthier on, in every way and become more aware mm. and more involved. It's interesting. I was watching a show recently where I'd heard, I think, you know, for the 50th time or more, you know, a nutritionist trying to get somebody who was, you know, quite morbidly obese back on track. And I was watching and think, this person doesn't know how to cook. That was the problem. Mm. They, they, they sure. didn't understand ingredients, didn't sure. know how to cook. So you can tell them what to eat. You tell them what they should eat. But if they're not cooking, then uh, how do they 
make any kind of significant change, touch look, and feel. And mm, look, absolutely. And uh, we, we are lucky, I guess, that we were raised in those environments where, you know, you can identify what a parsley and a coriander and how to combine stuff yeah. together. And, and essentially anybody who's exposed to that environment will be able to cook. Obviously, there's nothing magic about it. Um, yeah, it is magic when you eat it. But um, <laughs> uh, so the, the thing that I find a bit almost uh, schizophrenic um, is that we, we harp on about the health of the nation and we want to ban smoking and we want to, and absolutely, rightly so, we take this approach, but then at the same time, we enable, if you look to schools, the amount of fried rubbish that is in those school kiosks. These are kids whose bodies and appetite is like a sponge and they are learning uh, both physically and in terms of addictions uh, to eat in certain ways. McDonald's, and, and it's not about the politics of McDonald's. I mean, if, if a country is genuinely concerned with the health, then begin to be consistent about that and be consistent across sections, not just selectively because we're following some fad about... And I, I love the fact that we've led the way on uh, smoking and our approach to smoking, but let's be consistent when it comes to all other health-related issues. Yeah, you've got to teach kids when they're really Absolutely. young. Absolutely. I think yeah, if you're yeah. not investing in children, I mean, look hmm. at Stephanie Alexander's Alexander, yes. kitchen garden yes, program. Yes, And my daughter's school when she was younger had a kitchen garden and yes. the kids love it. But they yeah. only do it for such a short period of time. Yes. And it's a life skill that I think, you know, is uh, so important and yet yeah. most kids leave school not knowing how to cook or not knowing five or ten dishes that they're comfortable with. And it's funny, as you're talking about vegetarian food there, People, people are so habitual. The only reason they're buying protein is because the only thing they can think of. Yeah. You know, they go, I need skinless chicken thighs because that's, I can think of a chicken dish. That's right. Whereas rather than thinking of 10 chickpea dishes, they that's come, right. come to mind like that delicious dish that you were bake. describing. Yeah. I'm going, you know, listening yeah. to this, I go, gee, I need to go home and make a chickpea bake because yes. that sounds wonderful. I think it's a lot also, of it comes from that. Yeah. And look, it's also, uh, again, about affordability and affordability yep. of certain ingredients and, uh, you know, being more mindful of, um, it's much more accessible for somebody who, um, you know, uh, whose socioeconomic conditions um, are not as well off. It's much more affordable to go to Macca's and feed the entire oh, yeah. family yeah. Uh, than it is to cook an organic chicken. And yeah. that is something that we can take some responsibility for um, uh, educating, I guess, and, yeah, and sure. create more awareness. Let's rewind the clock a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. um, where are you from? Um, so I'm a hybrid breed. Um, I like saying that. Um, <laughs> so uh, my dad's Moroccan and my mum is a mix of, depending on how far back you want to go, um, who went from Germany, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon. Um, and in that sense, we're a hybrid mix of a whole, you know, myriad of not just cuisines, but cultures and influences and even religions, if you like, or... Um, and I think that uh, probably is an indication of why I try not to be divisive in whether it be my social approach to issues um, and or uh, cuisine, that we try and marry up ingredients and partner up with issues and causes that ordinarily are very politically split. Yeah. So like Muslims and Jews, for example, 
um, because my mum's line is Jewish and my dad's line is Muslim. And according to uh, the Jewish faith, you follow your maternal line and uh, unquestionably so. And according to the Muslims, you follow your paternal line. And I just think, but I'm only one body. What do you want me to do? Um, And in that way, I guess it enables an understanding and a very different understanding. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in, I was born in Melbourne at the Queen Vic. Uh, we left when I was four or five. And who's we? Mum, The whole dad. family. The whole family. How, what's the whole family? Um, uh, five kids. Mum, dad, both have passed now. But um, And why was that one? Did you leave? Because... Because uh, I think the same issues we're still tussling with around, yes, we celebrate multiculturalism and we celebrate, um, you know, beyond the food, uh, we need to look at how we integrate people and how we, um, I guess, begin to celebrate and appreciate and enable different communities Mm. to integrate. Uh, My mum, although she'd been here at the time 50 years, she did not understand Uh, nor relate how to speak English. She didn't partake in society, whatever, whatever. So the systems weren't there to encourage that. And she became so uh, depressed and um, lonesome and longed for home. So So was this back in the 70s? Are we, yes, yeah, yes. about right? Yeah, and uh, so mum longed for home and became depressed and, you know, we had she had so many kids and uh, dad was working all the time, as men do, uh, of that uh, generation and, um, you know, mum just deteriorated and really wanted to go back. So uh, he took us back to Morocco, which she still didn't fit in, didn't belong because she's from Lebanon. Um and then we went back to Lebanon and those conditions as a kid, um, I guess you can't even imagine what was at stake. Yeah. Because um, there was a war going on. It was on, a right? war going on and basic survival and food, simple, simple things uh, that we take for granted. Do you understand your father's thinking now? Like when you look back, why did he go from Morocco into um, probably one of the most dangerous. Well, Lebanon at the time the wasn't. The time. It, I mean, it's always had a history of being unsettled. But at the time when we went there, and it was where Mum felt okay. And uh, given the gender relations and how men are the breadwinners and women are the one that re- you know raise families, um, Dad couldn't work in Lebanon, and um, but Mum couldn't survive elsewhere. So he took Mum where her and the kids were going to survive where he could then go and seek uh, employment and give us, you know, support the family in that way. Needless to say, just after we arrived in Lebanon, the war broke out and the civil war especially and the stakes were so high and Dad's absence became very present in our so lives. So was he overseas? He was back in Dad Morocco? Left. Or? <laughs> Dad left. <laughs> he left. He'd gone. <laughs> he, well, he'd gone because there was no work in Lebanon. Yeah. So he went, he went to many places. He went to Germany, to Morocco, to Turkey, and came back to Australia and left us in Lebanon. Um, in, and during harrowing times where, you know, as a kid um, – Often, oftentimes we went hungry and, and I think I mentioned in the book that I talk a little bit about uh, sometimes the most, uh, you know, tasty meal that you look forward to is a, just a bit of uh, flat bread that's toasted with a bit of mint on it and a drizzle of oil, if you can get some olive oil. And that is enough and it satisfies all your senses. So, um, 
Yes, we grew up in terms of extraordinary adversity, but it also shapes you and shapes your perspective and outlook to appreciate and coming back to food, to also learn to be creative about the very little you have, the very little ingredients um, available to you. Can you remember odd moments? How old were you at this time? Six, seven, eight. eight. So we were there. So for, can you remember for that time. around because you, your memory tends to be a bit shady, doesn't it, when you're yeah. really young? But around eight or yeah. nine, do you yeah. do you remember moments? I don't know, in the house or the yeah. flat or yeah. walking the street or. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember moments where bombs were dropping. I remember moments where you had to, and in a place like Lebanon, uh, certainly in that era, um, men are the ones, and when I talk about a gendered society, and it's not to say it is better or worse, it is just gendered in the spaces that men move in and the spaces that women move in. Um, And those spaces were very much uh, the realm of men shopping, uh, buying, bringing produce to the home. And in the absence of a dad, I guess it was on us to do that. So I was a kid, um, four, five, six, all those, particularly where there there was a shortage of basic, basic things like food um, and bread. And mum had five kids she needed to feed. Um, So I put my hand up to be that person, to go and push through queues of men uh, to get bread. <laughs> and, um, you know, needless to say, uh, you, yeah, you end Describe up coming that. home. I mean, do you remember? I mean, is, I remember is it, it vividly, is it the yeah, smells, yeah. the... Look, when you're hungry, I think all smell is accentuated, isn't it? When you're, now you're taking me down memory lane. Uh, when you're really hungry, uh, the smell of bread is like nothing else. Fresh bread that's been baked and you're standing in a queue uh, with probably 30 men in front of you and you're kind of this little thing. So you try and push through and um, and hopefully um, there'd be some bread left and at times there wasn't. Um, but then I became, and I think these experiences shaped and my development about I became the fixer in the family where there were problems, you know, looked at me, where there are shortages, oh, Hannah will fix it. So I, I developed that role. And in the end, I ended up getting bread for other people in the building <laughs> because as a kid, you could push through and uh, whereas the adults had to line up and, uh, yeah. Yeah, they just assumed you were someone yeah, yeah. else's kid. In That's the right. Queue, right, yeah, and they kept letting you so through. So when did so. you come, you came back to Australia? Was when that I was still 12. A, at 12, yeah. right? Yeah. And how did that feel? Do you remember that? Oh, I mean, I what, what was significant about coming back to Australia? Was it getting on the plane in <laughs> Lebanon or getting off the plane or well, uh, the first place you lived? I think uh, school, school, the first day at school and just being completely overwhelmed by not only the inability to speak English and um, the... Adolescent kids, they're cruel. Oh, they yeah. are cruel when you speak with an accent or don't understand. or And and it is, it's the nature of adolescence, isn't it? Um, but at the time, I took it so personally and uh, stopped speaking for a whole year and would go home and I'd practice uh, accents and I'd practice this and that as opposed to this and that. Mm. Um, and any expression of my difference, I withheld for a year. Um, and that, to me, still stays with me about why and how um, my expression 
if I didn't fit in, how to fit in and what are those elements? And I think you inherit that a little bit from your parents as well. Mum didn't fit in at the time and they took us and we kind of changed conditions and we came back not fitting in. We didn't eat the Vegemite. We didn't speak English. We didn't. So we became the conduits of of integration, of changing the way in which not only society deals with migrants, uh, but the way in which we relate back to society. We're that second generation, mm. I think, um, the onus, and there's a heavy onus on those kids not to maintain the isolation mm. as well. Had your parents tapped into a Lebanese community in Melbourne when they came back? Um, Do you remember that? Yeah, or were they... Look, um, yes and no, and they weren't very social anyway. And it, and the community itself wasn't very big at the time. Well, certainly my reading or seeing of it. Um, but they weren't very, very social beings. So mum would make friends with a neighbour who spoke Vietnamese, who didn't speak English, and mum didn't speak English. I don't know what version. But communication is, is an interesting... Um, you know, when it's beyond language, when uh, people come together and women especially and communicate through some other medium. Mm. Um, and we were exposed to that a lot, much more than just mixing with Lebanese people. Um, so, yeah. Because it's interesting because many cultures need that. Other mm. cultures kind of reject that. That mm. Anglo-Saxon, me, myself, yep. I, it's all yep. about the individual. Yes. They don't connect with anything. Yep. Whereas Italians and Lebanese and yep. Greeks tend to, or Chinese Vietnamese, yep. tend to, you know, live together, or at least stay connected at some point. Yep. Do you remember when you came out of your, I don't know whether you call it out of your shell, I mean, <laughs> but if, you know, as you went into your later teens at school, yep. had you found your place um, or still not? Look, I'm, I'm somebody who, uh, I mean, it depends on how much we're going to get into this story. Uh, as but deep my, as you want to go. <laughs> well, my, my identity was shaped through adversity. Adversity not only in the country we lived in and the conditions, but adversity on a personal level through uh, a marriage that was arranged at a very young age, experiences of violence. Um, how, how old were you? Uh, I was 15 in Australia, married. Um, Did you have any say? Well, no, no of course None. not. No, of course Had not. Had you met this man before? No, no, somebody else uh, brought it. But the, the point of, of, I guess, for me is not to uh, blame or demonise a culture and say this has happened because of the culture or because of expectations. It happened because... Um, I guess we live in systems across the world and those systems, no matter their culture, are very much about, um, and we're still tussling with them now. If you see the Me Too campaigns, you see the closing the gender pay gap, you see the treatment of Gillard in Parliament. So we live in systems across the globe that are subjugating of women and girls and women are trying to close those gaps. Um, so the culture I was raised in is no different. It, it manifests itself differently, but it's no different in power relations. Um, but what shaped my upbringing is um, I was, you know, not only experienced violence, uh, dissuaded from aspiring to certain things as a girl and a young woman. And um, so conventions for me were something, at some point there was a, um, a crossroads with, 
upholding them or completely ignore them. And so what shaped my survival, if you like, is to bypass conventions altogether. Um, and from there, I guess that's where who, I found what was my... The trigger? What was that trigger? Oh, well, the trigger for me was um, not only being placed in situations of violence um, and, you know, physical domestic violence, but... Um, the inability to leave that situation at every turn as a woman in Australia even, uh, seeking to leave the the excessive violence both through the courts and the court system at the time didn't recognise family violence. It was seen as a private matter. Um, and even culturally, oh my goodness, what are we going to say to the people and the expectation that there's the focus of shame became on the women, not on the people committing the shame, which was extraordinary. Um, so that was the impetus for me and the trigger. And at some point, um, I guess my inner fight uh, arrived at a place where I just thought that the decision before me is to stay in a situation of violence or to try and kill myself to get out. And I attempted suicide, basically. So and you at got that, to the point where it, that was it the seemed like a, a good option to... Well, it seemed like the only option. And that became the turning point where my family and mum in particular at the time thought enough. And she chose the daughter over the reputation. And she learnt as well. We all learnt through that journey of change. But it, it's... It's on women to push the bounds and mm. it's on women to change conventions. How did that little moment happen? I mean, did, did your mum and dad turn up to your doorstep and take you away? I mean, <laughs> well, I was in hospital, happened? actually. Oh, in hospital? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, you know, like, uh, yeah, when I say I don't mean it as a metaphor, I literally, yeah. um, you know, took a whole heap of pills and uh, just thought... And for me, often, you know, notions of suicide, and I was young, you know, by this stage, I was still under 20, um, that sometimes uh, children uh, or young uh, teenagers look to attention or look to, you know, when we talk about teenage suicide, etc. Whereas for me, there was, and I recall the moment, there was such a... Um, you were required to be brave. There was a bravery in it and there was a defiance in it and there was a you-can't-break-me attitude in it as opposed to I'm desperately looking for help, um, although I was as well. So I think that defiant, uh, when you reach that uh, precipice, then everything else is easy. After the break, Hannah and I talk more about a philosophy and what her hopes for the future are. Stay with us. So the next step? Oh, the so next step. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, the next step, uh, obviously, uh, hence, you know, why I worked in women's domestic violence so services. That a, is that where you wanted to take it? How did yeah, you of course. manoeuvre yourself into that? Yeah, so uh, for me, resilience was always had through education um, and education was so important to me. Yet 
denied at every turn. <laughs> you know, you, you marry somebody young and he doesn't want you to go to school and then uh, you find yourself in situations where you're divorced and, oh, no, people want to protect you from, I don't know what, you can't go to school. So I kept going back to school. Um, and even where I worked in, you know, factories as my first job, I still studied. And that's what gave me resilience, uh, connecting to a world bigger than your own and seeing the possibility and hope of what's out there and developing your sense of self and pinning hope on that as opposed to the limitation of what your immediate experience was. Um, so with that, I worked, did a few kind of menial odd jobs because I wasn't qualified to do anything, worked from literally packing clothes in container, which was like, oh my God, um, <laughs> at a very young age and then kind of, uh, found myself, uh, you know, alongside studying, uh, worked in a place called Data Connection where you letters in envelopes and whatever um, and then worked on the trams and uh, and through the trams you know uh, you, you find your flair you find your feet and for me I'm a people's person always have been and uh, with that I believe in people as well that uh, the decency of people when you can take them on a journey will almost always uh, come to the fore mm. as opposed to um people's worst attributes so um yeah and with that then naturally i found myself working in women's domestic violence crisis intervention services and uh you know then the moroccan soup bar how long did you do that for 14 years 14 years and i did that in uh, does it become a i mean you hear a lot of my uh, sisters been in the police force for mm, a long time mm. and it becomes it's a it's a thing that i think wears people down after a, a while Look, um, do. I, I don't know that it wears you down. I think for me, the because I, I worked in various capacities. I worked from direct service, um, you know, where you answer the phone to people and women in crisis, especially, and try and find solutions, uh, to then developing policies on how to better respond to... Uh, on a state level, issues of violence against women, to then advising governments on uh, the specific needs of people from marginalised communities. Um, so, no, it doesn't wear you down, but uh, the frustration with when you know what the solutions are and mm. you know how easy they are, and they're not about throwing money at it, they're about thinking differently, um, That that is what becomes frustrating. And for me, the the moment I walked away from it was was the moment I was safest in, in employment. I had a company car, I was paid really well um, and in terms of status recognised, yet I had no conviction about uh, affecting change. Yeah. And so I had to confront in that the system in the and system and I just thought we are more effective providing food to people and supporting women in that practical way which kind of brings me back to the Moroccan super. Mm. Um, and initially, the women who worked with me were women who were escaping and experiencing uh, crises of sorts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, two decades on, those women have changed and the nature of who comes in and younger women are there and, and community finds its vitality in, in those spaces. And we've all grown and evolved over the years. But that is the background to how we came to be. Do you think there's a bit of um, 
and I've heard it before that possibly the the best solutions are in private enterprise rather than in government for lots of these issues. I I try not to do the either or. I mm. think both are important, and I think governments can learn um, and need to reform and need to respond effectively, and. More and more, I'm finding communities so disengaged from governments as well. And uh, equally, people are demanding more from businesses. So um, to me, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, But governments need to begin to re-engage, I I believe in my experience, uh, a society that's become really unsettled. There's a groundswell of discontent in communities that we speak to and we speak to alongside food and examples of that i began to run um <laughs> over dinner people would come in for dinner and i go ding 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 and begin to make announcements about um pauline hansen calling muslims a disease that need vaccinating and i say um simply to to a full house of people that uh that being patrons of an establishment like this is the vaccination against bigotry and ignorance. And I hope communities have an appetite for it. So it's without reacting to Pauline Hanson, but simply offering up something else. And more and more communities are wanting that. Yes, it's unconventional. Yet again, 20 years later almost, we're breaking very new ground in what hospitality is doing alongside community justice issues. And I uh, also headed a campaign on same-sex marriage every night at the Moroccan Super and ding, ding, ding. Uh, at the moment, we are being asked as a as a society to cast judgment on one another, for a mother to judge her child and siblings to judge one another, mm. um, and colleagues. And people are hurt by this process. Yeah. This is not to be celebrated. And most people, y- if you invite them to even where they part company with one another's opinion, you can invite them to respectfully offer the dignity and respect to somebody else. They'll put their hand up to that because you're not being divisive. And those spaces where people are now congregating are becoming places where a community is becoming re-empowered. Yeah. You ran a, I don't know if you do it all the time, but you did speed date. Speed date a Muslim. Muslim. That's another example of community engagement. Yes. So uh, again, um, as with everything we do, it is about a mindfulness of the climate we're operating in. Now, in the last, and especially, I think, uh, since the uh, Charlie Hebdo in Paris, um, the given the women I work with and given who those women are, there had been an increase in hostility and in attacks on those women, be it in supermarket aisles, random street attacks, uh, verbal assaults, go back to your bloody country, you're the source of all evil. And I think the, the sad reality is when a government doesn't lead on uh, keeping a community safe and speaking to a multicultural Australia in a real way, when our government is also being very divisive, you better adopt Australian values. Well, we are Australian, guys. You can't continue to other people and whip up and make a society unsettled and then say, I want you to integrate. So the people who bore the brunt of those attitudes, the sad reality were women, always the softer target. And I'm somebody who 
as I said, I believe that humans are decent. We've been made unsettled. Society's polarised. How do we bring people together to showcase our humanity? And it was a simple, innocent idea where I thought we put Muslim women alongside uh, non-Muslims and begin to have a conversation. Um, And those conversations were not to speak to people's Islamophobia. So we framed them up in a way that is about engagement and inquiry. Um, Because if we were to believe the story that was being told in this closed circuit in the media and politicians, we would ourselves be afraid of ourselves. Uh, But that was so (laughs) unfounded um, in terms of the reality of the lives of Muslim women. I mean, they're Oka Aussie. Some of us are more than Oka Aussie themselves. Um, So when you offered those spaces up, and I thought, I don't know how many people will turn up, if people will turn up. But it was an idea and an idea that was built on the faith in the decency of, of our community and celebrating our plurality. And it's taken off. It's become a thing. Now, with Speed Data Muslim, they uh, speak to... There's no point just speaking about Islam conceptually. Uh, it's as it pertains to social issues like same-sex marriage, uh, like environmental issues, like asylum seekers, like uh, Invasion Day, Australia Day, those conversations. Um So we then develop themes. So each month we run these events where we sit Muslim women alongside non-Muslims and uh, the topic of the day is discussed. So a community will say, well, how does Islam respond to, um, you know, same-sex marriage? And we have to take a stand about recognising that Islam, as I was saying earlier, is exactly the same as every other social system uh, that's departed from its very premise and principles. There's no kidding ourselves that there's no example across the globe at the moment showcasing Islamic principles as I understand them, that these systems have not only departed from Islamic principles of human rights, social justice, um, compassion to those that are socially vulnerable, they are built on subjugating the vulnerable, women, the poor, etc. So they're not to be celebrated, but they're also not to be confused with Islam. So we began to have the conversations around same-sex marriage that we as Muslims, um, in, in, in the myriad of our expression, can only afford uh, support and compassion and extend the principle of Islam to people that are being persecuted at the moment. And from there, it was a no-brainer. It was a natural partnership and a natural alliance between Muslims and the same-sex community. What are the, what are the most commonly heard arguments do you hear around those tables in in uh, the Moroccan the speed, super? In the speed because they're be, Muslim, they'd be, yeah, yeah, because there'd be some fairly strong opinions. Of course, and I'd imagine, of course, you know, you, you'd have people yep. there that just want to have their say yep. and be heard. And look, I invite them, and I guess uh, for for us, um, it's not about speaking to the extremes. There's no point speaking to the converted equally. There's no point speaking to those who are adamant in their opposition who have currency from hating because on Because they you. are never going to change their minds. Well, minders. at some point they will. Uh, <clears throat> but to take this gig to the most hostile of climates is ridiculous. It, it defeats the purpose. Um, so, yes, at times there's a theme in what emerges and people... If you are encouraging and inviting people uh, to be honest and to transcend the politically correct 
uh, what they're allowed to and aren't allowed to ask and say, then you've got to be able to manage those conversations in a way that uh, maintains the safety of everybody. Um, well, it's really about the topics that yeah. are discussed around the yeah, table yeah. and things that... The For biggest, example, that you've mm, been talking about yeah. were, you know, empowerment of women. Yes. So I'm sure, you know, liberal Australians were saying, well, how does Islam, Indeed. you know, yes. um, feel about yes. empowerment of women? So one of, one, of the, one of the main issues is the role and status of women in Islam, because obviously every time we want to have a conversation about Islam and women, we go to some guy uh, from the board of imams <laughs> mm -hmm. who will barely be articulate and string a sentence together and tell you uh, as a last resort he can hit her with a Colgate toothbrush or something ridiculous yeah. like that. Um, now that in everything I've said is nothing to do with Islam and everything to do with bad behaviour. Um, and when a society cannot see the nuance of... Uh, these conversations, when we simply seek somebody who reinforces this idea of unsettling right? people um, and have them represent the entirety, the whole, then that's on us as well. We There has to be an incentive mm. to challenge that nonsense. Um, Islam, as I'm saying, and yes, I'll respond to people who have been made unsettled and afraid, we start from the premise that there is no clash between Islam, humanity, democracy, human rights. In fact, they're natural allies. Um, and if that is the premise, then anything else that doesn't and can't be measured up against those principles, I would put to you, is un-Islamic. Simple. What's the most commonly asked question? Why do you speak. wear the hijab? I was waiting for that one. Yeah, the hijab has become... Um, it's so interesting that... Uh, How do you feel about it, first of all? About the hijab? Because you're a Muslim woman. And I don't wear it. No. Um, I, and you're uh, confident, you're powerful, and all the other things that we'd expect you to um, be. And, and I have a profound sense of faith, but I've had to go th full circle into... Um, exploration, rejecting the nonsense and dissociating that from what it means to have faith, like a whole life's journey to You've arrive. Been through of course. Um, because were, in the name of the faith. What were some of those moments that. that well, in the name of, of Islam, I was treated uh, in horrific ways, and the justifications used were theoretically Islamic. I was young, I didn't understand, and I thought, this isn't for me, this is ridiculous. Mm. Um, and in opposition to that, at the other end of the scale? Well, then I uh, went and explored, because for me, it's about finding meaning, no matter where that is. Judaism, Christianity, atheism, Buddhism, agnost, uh, Marxism, feminism, I explored it all. And when I said earlier, I, I try and, uh, for me, resilience is education. So... Um, sought to find my place and space inside various systems from all those different mm. faiths to rejecting the faiths to, and then came back, I guess, to what I found naturally in Islam uh, for me, that it was a system that enabled me to be empowered, a woman, feminist, um, environmentalist and advocate of social justice. In fact, it compels me to uphold human rights. So my understanding of Islam uh, changed because I also studied Islamic history, Islamic philosophy, and not 
the the cultural and traditional versions of Islam that become hand-me-downs through mm. generations where women um, have been made illiterate and severed from, I mean, with the exception of few, obviously, but in the whole, severed from conceptualising and understanding Islam and its expression. How then can we celebrate women? So I advocate re-engaging with an understanding of the principles of Islam before we even talk about the nuance and hijab, niqab, whatever. So, and you asked me about my view is I defend your right to wear your burqa. I defend your right to walk in the street butt naked. I defend your right to be who you need to be and your own authentic expression of that. Now, with that said, I do not uphold uh, the idea that a country like, without politicising everything, like Saudi or Iran or anywhere else, prescribing the hijab, because that's forced and that is not women making the decision to wear it. The hijab for some women is uh, and should be only an expression and a symbol of their faith, not of their oppression. And uh, when we, uh, I guess, can begin to understand that when we see a woman in a hijab, it's an expression of her faith. If we're speaking about it in Australia, I'm not talking about the hijab in a different context. Well, we well that's right. Well, in Australia, more often than not, it's mm. more likely to be that. Yeah, because the system is so against it that uh, when a woman's wearing it, she's mm. wanting to wear it. And you think for people that come along and talk to these women, mm. what do you hope that they take away from it? What I, do you think they most often mm. take away from it? You, they would look, tell you, yeah. wouldn't they? Look, I, I think we all walk away a little more changed and a little more enlightened. Um, none of us are here to teach and we all learn and we learn through those engagements and interactions. And for me, um, a sense that um, an open-mindedness and a respect and a connection up with no matter our differences, our humanity. Um, and essentially that's reinforced at every speed data Muslim. So yes, they began as an innocent initiative of community empowerment and engagement, um, but they, we've been asked to take them to Shepparton, uh, to Bendigo. Um, we've been asked, we've run them at the State Library. We've run them at the National Gallery of uh, Victoria. Now we've been asked to do them again, now at schools, at Box Hill. And I think they're simply speaking to an appetite um, of wanting to be better. And that momentum, uh, I've never been into statehoods, but that momentum is being driven in Melbourne at the moment. Melbourne has put its hand up emphatically for, for being the social conscience of the country. And initiatives like this are simply an example of that, where people are now finding their empowerment back in sporting clubs, fishing clubs, cafes, um, and a lot less engaging with politicians and, you know, the level of distrust at the moment. Well, I think is the, the, <laughs> I'm loving what you're saying. I think the struggle is always that news is more kind of frivolous and, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, social media platforms, mm. we, we're just bombarded with mm. rubbish most of mm. the time. Absolutely. It's very, I mean, I've got a 16-year-old and he's constantly attached to her phone who wants to be an individual. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's uh, I go. You really, you can see the. Uh, you know, I tried yeah. to say to her every time you pick up the phone mm. and read something, you're thinking. Look, I feel sorry else. for young women, especially young men and women who 
in our generation, uh, we grew up, you get your sense of self, however problematic mm. that is and inadequate from your family, yeah, from people immediate. in your corner mm. who support you. These young kids get their sense of self from anonymous likes mm. and that is dangerous. Yeah, anonymous sources. Uh, well, and with that, they, they represent themselves in the most... Uh, I think superficial of ways that you have to look a certain way. You have to take the best selfie or not. Mm. Um, it slightings and you delete everything else. So this obsession with uh, the world out there uh, having a perception of you, and then you internalize that perception. And if you don't get enough, then your sense of self is eroded. That that is a dangerous phenomenon mm. for young kids, especially. Um, so for your daughter, I would say turn that <laughs> turn that ridiculous oh, thing do off. Do I ever? Do turn I Turn it off and uh, look inward, young it's, lady. It's also difficult for people, I think, to sift through what's right, what's not right. Everybody's looking for, as you say, you know. I mean, I think on the whole, people are good. Mm. We're um, wired for, for the good. biases and the mm. you know the problems that uh, they they talk about statistically mm. things that are most likely to happen to you people aren't thinking about and the things that are most mm. unlikely to happen to them they're thinking about that's because right. they're watching the news or they're worried about something that's happening in Paris or they're worried about something that's mm. happening elsewhere. It's interesting. So are things changing, changing Hannah? Uh, absolutely. I, I have a lot of hope, um, not only uh, in uh, in human beings but in Melbourne in particular and I, I think the tide has definitely turned and we are tipping into a critical mass, for lack of a better word, um, where you're engaging the betterment of human beings in various platforms. Um, I, I, for one, um, am humbled by the amount of the appetite um, where any time we run an event, um, most people kind of turn up in droves and those events are filling up and we're needing bigger spaces to run them. Um but I guess nothing more um, timely and important than I think, you know, many visionaries across time have mentioned this, that when you tell the truth, you can reconcile any atrocity, whether it be sexual abuse, whether it be colonisation, whether it be a whole host of issues. Now, unless we as a country, and I think there's a readiness at the moment to begin to tell the truth on the legacy and history of the continued disposition of Indigenous people, this is on us. Mm. We can do better. People and communities want to do better. We have governments that don't, that are interested in polit politicising every uh, and setting up almost in competition uh, that human rights and respect for the dignity of individual is at odds with our economic potential. That is ridiculous. And people are waking up to that. So is there hope? Absolutely. You know, where the rally, the Australia Day, uh, symbolically celebrating Australia Day um, on the 26th of January, um, I think 40,000 people turned up to the official parade, 60,000 people, unprecedented, turned up to the Invasion Day parade. People want to do better. And the more we offer up those platforms and opportunities, the more people are soaking them up. So absolutely. And I, for one, try to have the conversation around uh, celebrating Australia Day as an analogy, simply, if I was having end of year celebration and on that same day my father was shot, 
I, for one, want to celebrate, want to feel festive, want to celebrate end of year and all achievements. Simultaneously, I'm grieving. If we change the day, we all celebrate. Everybody wins. Nobody loses. And if you have the conversation in that way, it changes people's willingness to get on board. This is not about anybody losing. This is about everybody winning. Mm. The reluctance, the resistance... The resistance is political. It's not. It's not people. The resistance is politics and a lot of uh, money and currency that goes into the continued unsettling of people, mm. and that I think people are seeing through that. I mean, politicians at the moment are as trusted as used car salesmen. If oh, that, worse. If that, worse, if that, I think. you get a car with used car salesmen. And and the future of what you're doing, where where would you see yourself in five or ten years, or what would you love to be involved in? Um, look, more of the same, and I think uh, ever since I can remember, my my own currency is social and uh, community justice, and no matter where that is, that is a perspective through which I live, um, and whether that be serving up plates of food and changing up uh, hospitality, or whether it be sitting in conversation with you uh, and or sitting with a homeless person on the street. Um uh, more and more at the moment, thankfully, and um, people are lowering their standards, I think. They're asking me to speak at various platforms and uh, <laughs> um, I'm more than happy to. And uh, as long as there's an appetite for it, uh, connect up with ultimately the sense of we are better together, we're stronger together, our diversity will sustain us, not our similarity. Yeah. And if we can contribute to those conversations... Yeah. Um, well, it's and, fascinating, it's interesting, and it's yeah, rewarding, isn't it? absolutely. I mean, absolutely. purely from a food perspective, I always find... <laughs> That's right. I but, always <laughs> find when we ever talk about food with anyone, whether <laughs> they're in a hijab or not, whether yes. they're in, in Vietnam or America yes. or wherever, that it's like music, like art, it's... Mm. Uh, one of our common interests and the mm. smiles on people's faces. Absolutely. You know, always kind of sing through and, and amazing what we have in common versus what we don't. Mm. And often um, I think food uh, is also a way not only to bring people together, but it does break down when you're sharing in a communal way and mm. a communal style of eating, those invisible barriers just collapse. Um, so... Sometimes unwittingly, you don't know why, but intuitively you establish environments that um, lend themselves to break down mm. barriers. And then later you just go, oh, wow, how did I do that? Um, um, but if you are in touch with essentially um, it, the common good, almost always it'll unfold and be as rewarding as your very intentions in the beginning. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Hannah. Been an absolute pleasure to talk oh, to you. My pleasure. You know, anything anything that starts with food and then explores uh, something that has much more uh, kind of meaning and depth, um, and you know, shares an understanding of uh, of where you come from, where someone else comes from, is it's always a pleasure. Lovely, lovely conversation. I think. Thank, so thank you. you. Oh, thank you.
I love falafel, but one of the things that puts me off about making them is I want to use fresh chickpeas. In fact, you have to. And then you've got to go, well, I've got to soak those for 24 hours, so I can't have them till tomorrow. So it takes a bit of planning. If you want a bit of a cheat on that one, this is what I do. When you can remember, soak those chickpeas 24 hours, change the water, drain them well, put them in a container or two, and put them in the freezer. So when you get that little urge for a falafel, all you've got to do is take them out of the freezer, give them a defrost, it'll take about an hour, and then off you go. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski, executive producer Jamie Shu. audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. 